Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Wednesday Night Live. My name is Ron Crawford, and I am happy to be able to sit down with you and look at the Word of the Lord together today. Special greetings to our congregation here in Dallas, as well as to all of our Saints Network family who are positioned by the Lord in many different places around the world. You know, it's such a such a blessing to be partners with you. And I I that's just not preacher speak. That that's something that I say from my heart because it's um it's rare to find people who would are willing to be the remnant, who are willing to walk this walk of what the scripture identifies as a saintly walk. And I'm, I'm so grateful for each of you. And um, I, I do, though, before we get into what I believe is a very powerful study found in John 11, you can begin to turn there. There's no teaching outline today for you. The, the word of the Lord is going to be our outline. And that's John 11. So I can't hear the rustling of the leaves as you turn. Most of you are clicking on your screen anyway. But I've, I've got a Bible here. Hear that? Hear those rustling of the leaves? Just so some of you will feel that you've been to church. Um, John 11. Uh, before we get in there, I do need to make a, a, a very important announcement for those of you who are here in the Metroplex area. Um, as all of you in the network know, my wife's mother, uh, Amy Madden, passed away last week at the age of 99. And, um, you know, if I was a of a, of a of a trickster mode as a pastor, I would think of the 99s in Scripture. And, um, you know, that parable about the 90, there were 90 and 9 on the fields which lay. You know, that's an old hymn. Uh, but the one lost one. Who is lost today? That, that's, uh, that's, that, that'd be a good message to bring at, at a sermon if you had a bunch of unsaved people. But anyway, she passed away, and we're really thankful that God saw fit to finally take her home because she she uh, she needed to go on to be uh, be with the Lord. She's reunited with her husband and with uh, so many who she has uh, encountered from her family who've since passed on. When you reach 99, you know, that pretty much says that a whole lot of people that you've known in your life have already gone. Um, but we're very grateful for her life and for her ministry and um, just it's it's a blessing to know that she's with the Lord and that she is now um, forever in heaven. But the announcement extends then to the fact that we felt um, our initial intent, both with Debbie and her brother, was to have a very private family gathering and... Um, just it would have been easier for everybody and specifically for the son and the daughter, the only two children. But since that time, there have been a lot of people who um, who want to come, even though they may not have seen her for decades. And so we felt that there needed to be a memorial service. And so that will take place this coming Saturday, October 28th, at Restland in Dallas. It's on Greenville Avenue. And it's going to be in the Abbey Chapel. Not the Wildwood Chapel, not the main memorial chapel, but the Abbey Chapel. And if you drive into the place, if, if you feel you would want to come, um, there should be signs directing you to the Abbey Chapel. It's actually, uh, if you look at the map, you'll see that it's 
actually pretty much beside Greenville Avenue because that's a sprawling complex, many different acres. And um, so it, it won't be a long service, but there's going to be a lot of people there, many who you do not know. There's going to be lots of old-timey people there, people from the assemblies, people from Arkansas, we think from Oklahoma, uh, even one dear brother who used to come here to the church from Las Vegas will be here. It's just going to be quite a thing. And so um, if if you want to come, we recognize Saturday as a congested time frame. Um, and remember that we're not taking role uh, initially. Debbie just wanted to say goodbye and be be done with it. So she's not one of these ones that's overwhelmed by the funeral process. Um, so um, just know that if you can come, if you want to come, you're welcome. Abbey Chapel, Campus of Restland in Dallas, Greenville Avenue, at 10 o'clock this coming Saturday. And, um, you know, I plan to come in here to pray early and then get home to go out to the uh, memorial service. But we certainly, that's the one problem that I saw with this, is that it goes smack dab in the middle of the time that we normally have as prayer time. But we didn't have much of a choice. Uh, Saturday, you know, those slots fill up, and that's what they had, so that's what we had to take. Um, but please be faithful to pray. And um, may God bless all of you, and we thank you for your prayers and um, your sincere expressions of uh, condolence. Okay, since I just made an announcement about a funeral, I felt that it would be a good thing for us to look at one of the most famous deaths and funerals in all of the Bible. And it's found in the book of John, John chapter 11. It has to do with the story of Lazarus who died, but really wasn't really dead yet. He was dead, but four days later, his body was resurrected through the power of the Lord. As I mentioned this past Sunday, when we were speaking from Psalm 121, I referenced the fact that the name Lazarus actually is El El Azar. El Azar. The, the, the heart of God, El, Elohim, and this word, Azar, which means the treasure house, the storehouse, Malachi. Uh, it's uh, also a word that is used in it's to this day in the Middle East, in the Arabic languages, it means a covenant, a partnership relationship. And we extrapolate that out to remember, since it is also used to describe Osar, the, the storehouse that you bring the tithe into, we take that into the New Testament where the tithe is... Um, and what all that word means, it doesn't just mean a tenth. It, it's used for the ordination of people. It's used for the beginnings of ministries. It's, it's really the seed that goes forward and should be developed. And that's brought into, according to Jesus and according to the Old Testament, in the New Testament, it's the thesaurus in heaven. You know, you do these things, you have treasures in heaven. And... Just to refresh, that place in heaven is not filled with gold coins, although I'm sure there's gold there. It's, it's a place where God has invested his purpose 
he has prophesied, as it were, upon scrolls and spheres, and with his word, that his vocal expression, which doesn't ever die, it doesn't pass away, what it is that he's wanting to do, what it is that he's wanting to do in our lives, what it is that he conducts his kingdom business according to, and um, whatever we do in partnership with God, of course, is based upon us being born again through the blood of Jesus. You don't go anywhere with God without that. And But then once that happens, we are to grow in the Lord and we invest ourselves according to his heavenly identity for us, settled from the foundation of the world, in accordance with what he has ordained, largely in this place of the treasury. And that place, don't get lost in the weeds here. I'm just setting this out for you. We're going to come back and just get down home with our discussion of Lazarus. But that place has a link in the temple of the tabernacle with this word, the oracle. And really, the way it functions is God has settled what he's going to do. It's settled in the thesaurus. Everything then that he does is has to be sewn into an adherence to this place of his word that will never pass away. It's forever settled. And when God is doing something of a worldwide uh, transition or, or, or a, a season that is beyond just the seasons of our life or the seasons of particular ministry, the temple of the tabernacle of testimony, which is where the oracle was, the temple in heaven, will dictate an adherence to what God has established in eternity in that scroll basin. And then the temple of the tabernacle through intercession, through incense offerings, uh, through the conducting of business for the angelic, that then moves uh basically through God's desire to partner with us as intercessors, what happens on the earth. So you have the personal, you have the, the tribal, as it were, and, and I would say that the saints are a peculiar tribe of people before the Lord. We're all functioning to serve God as intercessors, but it's all in adherence with what God has ordained from the foundation of the world. So we were there, his writings were there, the plan for Christ to make us, uh, to provide us the privilege of partnering as born again and his sons, all of that is set. So with all of that said, David in Psalm 121 says, my help, double issuance, comes from Yahweh, the plan of God, who created heaven and earth. So I lift up my eyes to the mountain, my eyes to the mountain. And I don't want to do things in my own strength. I don't want to pervert the callings that I've been given uh, based upon my own viewpoint or lust or pride or whatever. And we studied about whence the perversion of the I-N, and then, um, but, but my, uh, my provision comes from what God has settled in heaven and what I'm partnering with. Does that make sense? You can go back and listen to that message. And in our archive, you can go back and listen to this that I've said for these past 10 minutes till it settles in you. And um, I, love, I love that concept. And we talked also, we're going to get to Lazarus here in just a moment. We talked also about how Eve uh, being created as a helper. That word helper is this word. She was not to be Adam's step and fetch it. 
I do not understand this. She, she was not here to cater to Adam. She was here to function as a helper of God. Same word. And it's interesting that when Satan tempted her through the serpent, she looked at the tree and it was pleasant to her eyes. And even though this perversion of Ayin is not listed there, this was beyond the enemy's rebellion. This was the first human malfeasance in that way. And um, so it's, it's just interesting how this word is used over and over again, but it comes back to the point of our hope and our treasure is in heaven. Everything we do should be in alignment with God's ways. We don't want to fail him. We don't want to misuse our gifts. We want to wait on his timing. We don't want to take matters into our own hands. And it's tempting to do that, isn't it? You've seen, not being critical, just observant, you've seen people fail in this way. And I don't, I'm, I don't know that, that there's any person who hasn't been tempted in this way to take matters into your own hands and forget that we're partnering with God's plan. Uh, there's a way that seems right in our own eyes, but the end is destruction. Um, we, uh, we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteous vision, and then he adds to us everything we need. All things work together for good to those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. See, we have to trust that God is going to take care of us. Sometimes we have to go before him and lay our burden down before him, but it's in conjunction with the fact that his eyes are upon us and our eyes need to be before him. And God will provide. But there's always the challenge of us trying to do things in our own strength. And I, I think that that is a... A wonderful lesson for us here. The provision, the storehouse is, is available to us. But the storehouse is not just treasures or provision in the natural. The greatest treasure is partnering with God and the greatest treasure is to see his will be done and his kingdom come. And that's always the problem, isn't it? where we, we either don't engage in that partnership in the way God has ordained, or when challenges come, we do what is right in our own eyes, which the Belial people did in the days of the judges were. And we, uh, we need to come back to that Ebenezer, the stone of our help, the stone of the treasury, and commit ourselves to God. Israel was there two times, at least, in Scripture. Um, it, obviously, that place existed before we read about it. When the ark was stolen, those people came, they fetched the ark, they went out to battle, God hadn't commissioned it. And then later on, Samuel, if the ark comes back, um, Samuel gathers them again at Ebenezer and makes a sacrifice in the covenant and God thunders and brings peace. And then the Rama schools begin to be established. Interesting. We're in that day again. But there's the test. Will we believe in that partnership with God, that covenant with God? That word was used to describe a covenant, a point of, of agreement upon a goal, agreement with a, a superior or a person another, or another person. For us, it's God. But we're aligned with others that are called to the same thing. We have to be careful. We have to be very careful. With great power, there comes great responsibility. And um, there's always going to be the temptation to look at what tree is there to do it in our own, in our own eyes, uh, to touch what God has not asked us to touch or where he forbade us to touch and to do things in our own way. We've seen people who have gotten sideways with the promise of God for whatever reason, 
And so they take their gifts and they say, oh, I can serve God over here because all roads lead to him. And what's happened to those folks? Well, God's the judge. But we need to stay faithful to what God says. So, with all of that said, we come to this story of Lazarus. And in John 11, this is the most lengthy story of a miracle that is found in the Bible. It goes, it goes 40, let's see, it actually goes 44 verses, but then you add on the next two. So 46 verses, that's a long chunk of scripture. Why is that? Well, I think from a practical standpoint, this guy was very important to those disciples and to Jesus, and they all were witnesses of this. So, you know, you, you had a plethora of experience and observation. But I, I know that beyond that, this whole story is a treatise on how to partner with the heart of God as partners in the treasure house. You know, there was one other Lazarus in Scripture, the only time in a parable that God chose to actually name somebody. Remember the, the Lazarus, who was the poor beggar, who had sores on him, and then the, the rich guy, and then they both die, and Lazarus is in Abram's bosom. And Abram says, you know, you in your life had pleasures, but this guy served God. And that's the, only, that's the other Lazarus in Scripture. And there's undoubtedly, a in that parabolic teaching, undoubtedly we need to see that no matter what we see going on in the world around us, no matter how difficult our walk on earth might be, we are, we are really citizens of heaven. And we are, um, we are a people that are going to fulfill what God's eternal plan is. Now, where was Abram's bosom? Where, where was this place of paradise in the Old Testament? Um, it would eventually be brought into the light of the, the gospel message when Jesus went and preached to them, and then he led all of them up into uh, the heavenly paradise. And um, so I think there probably is best uh, to, to assess this through the idea that the Old Testament was a type of what God would provide in the New Testament, those that partnered with God in the Old Testament were in alignment with what God wants to do through Christ. And this Lazarus in the New Testament, this whole story is a treatise for us on how to walk as a partner with God in alignment with the thesaurus, the storehouse in heaven where we sow our seed of obedience, where our identity becomes ordained. Those are all words used to describe Tetheme. And where we sow that seed in obedience to serve our Father as covenant partners to see his will be done and his kingdom come. Does that make sense? Because I'm very grateful for this understanding for a number of reasons. Because this is one of those stories in John 11 that when you read about it in the natural, doesn't, in the natural, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And Jesus was not confusing. Just because we don't understand, well, why did you do that? Why did you do it this way? Why did you say you weren't going to do this and then you did do this? There's always, when those things happen, a, a deep 
meaning, a deep, strong meaning that if we are led by the Spirit of truth, God will show us in his time and it will shine the light on the whole meaning of the passage. Now, the passage was true before you got that meaning. Meaning, The, the passage could be used in a number of different ways because the Word of God is alive before you got that meaning. But it's just like in everything in life, you can enjoy a blessing or you can enjoy the fullness of that blessing. And it's all in the way you recognize and deal with it. I want the fullness of the Word. How about you? I want to be um, at the feet of Jesus, guided by the Spirit of Truth, to understand the depths of what God wants to show us in His Word, the meat, the strong meat of His Word. I, I, I want that. Not for any purpose other than just from the depth of who I am, I want that. I desire it. Don't you? And you know, when we have that, it causes the rest of the word to come alive in new ways. It's like a rejoicing throughout the scriptures when we have a a deep insight like that. And it unlocks meanings of things throughout the scripture and whole new tributaries of of the treasure from the word are made known. And it also helps us in our stand in God. Just in the understanding of this Azar or Osar, Ezer, you can see how Satan fell. Just from our study of this, you can see how Gehaze fell. You can see how Hezekiah messed up. You can see how the sons of Belial in the days of the judges messed up. You can see um, uh, how Moses appealed to God in difficult times. Just an understanding of this one word unlocks key understandings of multiple passages of Scripture. It's just such a gift. And then you see people who take the Scripture and they misuse it. I'm not saying that some people misuse it on purpose, handling the Word of God deceitfully, the Bible says. But others just are reactionary and they'll pluck scriptures out of context and and use it in their thinking as a ticket to move into deeper things of the spirit realm. That is dangerous. Dangerous. That's awful. And um, I, I have no tolerance for that. You know, some people would say, oh, you're just being critical of those people. No, I'm not. I can spot if I spot malfeasance in the word, what am I supposed to do? Just sit there? Am I, am I not supposed to? Do you treasure the word of God? Is it precious to you? Does it bother you when you see people doing dumb things in the name of scripture or putting themselves at risk through a misinterpretation and an ex- and 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 an expansion of that misinterpretation it ought to how do you react when you see that not judgmentally but in a way judgmentally because the heart of god's judgment is not him sitting behind a desk in heaven with a gavel ruling on whether you were gypped out of a car payment or not the judge in heaven is based on the mishpat of god which in essence is yes his his word but it's it's whatever is forever settled in him and if if you're misusing the word innocently or otherwise that's danger ground you know we say that in in in, in our court systems ignorance of the law is no excuse <laughs> 
What about ignorance of the word? Now, some people just are children. I know that I have looked at scripture and not understood things. I know, in a pneumatica standpoint, that as a pastor from the general in, in the general church for many, many years, growing up in the general church, I saw lots of scriptures mis, mishandled. Now, God is my witness. I never used those confusing verses to try to persuade people to do something that I didn't that I wanted them to do. Like for instance, when you pray in the spirit, uh, you don't know how to pray, but the spirit himself prays exactly what you need. Oh, I've heard that preached. Uh, you know what? You've been you've been praying wrongly and when you pray in the spirit, then you're praying exactly what you should and you'll get an answer to your prayer. Or you know, um, you, you you know you're you're driving around somewhere and you need traffic to to clear up, or you come into a place you're late for an appointment. You need a convenient parking spot. Well, you pray in the spirit, and God's spirit knows exactly how to undo that thing. And then there you go. See, you take these deep pneumaticos principles, and you utilize them in ignorance for a temporal thing. Now, can God clear traffic? Yeah, I've seen him do it. Does he do it every time I'm stuck in traffic? Well, he sure didn't do it this morning. You know, there's a light down by the White Rock Lake at the spillway. That any time it rains, that thing will just start flashing red. It doesn't have to even be lightning. And I knew before I left to come in to do the Brazil broadcast this morning, don't go that way. But yet... I did it. And when I got stuck in the traffic, you, you've been stuck in traffic before and you think, there's no way I can get out of this. I can't do a Yui. I can't, I can't get out of this. And then so you sit there and you, you say, Lord, I knew better than to do this. Some of you would say, Lord, uh, why didn't you warn me? Well, he's probably trying to. Or you say, well, okay, how can I, how can I declare that Suddenly, this will open up and we'll move. Well, it's not like the Red Sea part, parting uh, anointing is on you at that point. <laughs> but I've, I've heard preachers preach about praying in the Spirit and suddenly what God doesn't have anything other to do than to say, oh, yeah, look, they're praying in tongues. You know, now I'll make that light work. But that was preached. And, and how did I use it? I'm sure, I don't remember, but but I'm sure I said something like, you know, sometimes when things are just really rough, the Bible says we have an advocate. Jesus is praying for us. And the Spirit is also praying in, 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 our, in our languages, the unknown tongues, exactly what we need to be praying to iron out this situation. I know I probably did that. But then when God shows us, hey, look, what, look what's really happening when you're praying from the Spirit within according to what God wants to accomplish, his mysteries, his partnership, that most holy faith, all of those things. And suddenly we see, wait a second. This isn't talking about traffic. This isn't talking about, you know, solve that snafu in, in the in the financial department at my work so that my check will finally come through. This is talking about high-level partnership with the throne for his will. So I want to know the depth of the word because then it helps me. It strengthens me. It helps me to partner better with God. It's just something that fuels deep within me, having the word that brings light. But also, when you learn those things, maybe, just maybe, you wise up in any area where you have been misusing a scripture, innocently or otherwise. Does that make sense? So here's this story with Lazarus. And as I said, just reading it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. 
Hey, Lord, your, your friend Lazarus, who's just, you love him. We all love him. Who, who doesn't love Lazarus? You know, he lives there with Mary and Martha. We love them too. It's always great to be at their house. Hey, he's sick. Let's go. No, not going. Hey, we're getting bad reports now. He, he could die. No, he's not dead. He sleeps. Oh, Lord, um, maybe we should go. If, if he's sleeping, then it's not a problem. Though no, you don't understand. Lazarus is really dead. Well, why didn't you say that earlier? Well, let's go up. Oh, no, we can't go up because the Jews tried to stone you when we were over near Bethany before. No, we're going to go anyway, Thomas says. Oh, well, let's all go up. We'll die together. Thank you, Thomas. That's really a blessed word. One of the twelve. Um, then he gets there. You know this story. And Mary, Ma Martha comes out. And she hears Jesus is coming. She takes off because Martha knew how to get things done. Martha was one of those people that was on top of things. Thankfully, she wasn't trying to tell Jesus what to do. A lot of times when you're walking as a covenant partner with God, there will be people that know exactly what you should do. And they will tell you, thus says the Lord, you need to do this. Why aren't you doing it, huh? Why aren't you, you should do this. You know, maybe we should help God out. You know, here's a way we can do it. There are those kinds of people. And you got people like Mary, who was at home, weeping openly. Whoa, clow. And um, she was just wired to emote. We love those kinds of people. They, they, they feel deeply and they want to express deeply. She was the one who poured out the, the ointment. In fact, it, it says it here. Verse 2, it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. This woman didn't know how to do things halfway. She was moved by the depth of her emotion in God. Well, here is this wacky series of events. My brother's dead. He was here one day. He's gone now. We buried him. Where was Jesus? Oh! Not doubting God, but just letting it fly. And then there are people who love funerals. We're facing some of that right now. I've seen that over and over. And I don't know how many funerals I've conducted. Probably over f almost 50 years in ministry. Well, let's just be fair. My wife wants me to be accurate. So I came here in 1980. So 43 years I was doing funerals that first year. And through that time, lots of different funerals. So let's say you average out two or three a year. So you're looking at 75 to 100 funerals. So I've seen lots of stuff. There are some people that just thrive. Thrive. In a mournful setting. It's like they, it's like, honey to a bee they're there they, they don't even have to be connected with the family in any way they, they, they can just know of them and they just love that atmosphere I'm not mocking them I'm just saying that they're that kind of people some of them were around Mary notice they weren't around Martha you notice that they were around Mary because that was the nerve that they could enjoy. I'm not calling them perverts. I'm not calling them anything bad. I'm just saying that there are some kind of people who love a good fiasco. Um, and, you know, uh, Mark Twain wrote about those kinds of people. He said that there are certain people that just love a good crisis. And um, you see them. In ministry, you face these kinds of folks. 
you face people that are near you that all have opinions as to what you should and shouldn't do and they don't understand even they may not understand but and but they're they're not criticizing you but their misunderstanding is so loud in their thinking that you can feel it then there are people who all want to venture their opinions or they want to ask you they're not questioning you but they 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 want to ask you questions there may be somehow that you can provide assurance to them that you really do under, understand what's going on and that you have it under control. And then there'll be suggestions. And, and I can understand if you sense that God's wanting to do something through this thing, which is what Jesus eventually says when he lifts up his eyes and he lifts, verse 41, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you heard me. But because of the people beside me, I'm saying it this way so that they might believe and learn because you've sent me to pattern this. Jesus was also twice, he groaned in his spirit, in the depths of his identity placed by God when he came to live on this earth, fully man, but yet fully God. To groan in the spirit, that point in the spirit, God's been showing us a lot of things in his word about that place within, hasn't he? And it's, it's been invigorating. It, it's, it's, it really, there's so much more to what God put in us that Jesus gave his life that it might be born again. Um, there's so much there. And, and it, it makes the word, the promises of the word come alive when you understand that. But here's Jesus groaning in his spirit. And there's also... Our favorite verse, I've joked about this in the past. I said, uh, you know, when we were kids growing up in church, we had to memorize verses. And sometimes they would let you choose which verse you memorized. Well, I always, this sounds bad. Don't shout me down now just because I'm being honest. I would want this verse, Jesus wept. You can memorize that verse. I still, I did a good job of memorizing it. I still remember it. Do you realize that this word for weeping is only used here once in all of the New Testament? And it's not a boo-hoo-hoo. It's, it's not even, it's not even a, a word of, of deep, you know, because the people around said, oh, how he loved Lazarus. See, they were watching Jesus to see, to deduce what kind of guy is he. Is he really loving? Do you ever notice sometimes people watch you and they're trying to analyze what's going on in you? When I see that happening, I, I think, I'm going to close the curtains here because it's none of your business. But be that as it may, these people watched Jesus and said, oh, how they love, how he loved him. But this word only used once here in this crucial moment you study what this word meant, and I did, it means for you to come to peace with what's going on in you. It has nothing to do with you loving or not loving somebody. It's you letting your own self process a thing. And the, the, uh, this word, an extension of this word in the nomenclature of the area, meant to be washed in some way to and now again i'm saying this word was used just this time in scripture but in the in the mindset of the people the koine of the day if you were if you were being cleansed of something in your own self and you you had to have that catharsis as it were and um so <clears throat> Jesus was really showing, okay, by this point, this wasn't about Lazarus. This was about himself. And, and those people, when they saw it, 
Look what they say in verse 37. Could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? Sounded like perversion of Edgar G. Robinson and Sean Connery. (laughs) But they mention the eyes. And that really is the story here. Jesus is going to lift his eyes to the Father. He's going to speak about that personal relationship, that partnership with the Father. He's going to speak about the validation and the depiction of his apostolic ministry. Here in this man that Jesus truly did love, this household that he was a part of in a lot of ways, Jesus wept. He was basically saying, or that indication was, look, I've dealt with people in my own company who were confused by me, who were, had suggestions for what I should do, people who were voicing negative things. I come here, I have to deal with the pragmatic practicality of Martha, and I have to deal with this other precious girl who chooses the good thing, who is going to anoint me with uh, a precious ointment, uh, you know, she's wailing. You got these other yahoos that are just feasting off of this moment because they're, they have a morbidity about them. Um, then I come here and um, my friend, I'm dealing with my own scenario because he did love Lazarus, but the weeping was not about Jesus loving Lazarus. It was the fact that Jesus had to make sure Have I done this the way I'm supposed to? I've even been groaning in my spirit. I've been troubled in my spirit. I don't want my spirit to become overheated and then to me be influenced to do something that I shouldn't do. That can happen too. So he weeps. A catharsis, as it were. And then he says, Take away the stone. And he lifts up his eyes. I thank you that you've heard me. And I knew you hear me. But because of these people who are just standing around, I'm saying it out loud so that they might also see how to do this and believe and to trust in the apostolic calling that I'm here to do. What led us to this passage today. El Azar. God loves you. And he gives you the opportunity to be drawn into that place of covenant partnership with him. And just to dispel something that covenant theology often says, God's not in partnership with you just so you have a bank account and you can write checks in Jesus' name. God is in partnership with you so that you can come alongside what he has ordained from the foundation of the world, what is forever written in heaven in this place of the thesaurus, this storehouse, where you're supposed to sow your life and your seeds of faith into. And that's the only place you sow it into. And you showing that you're partnering with God as an intercessor, as a son, as a saint, in alignment with the angelic, heirs, joint heirs, that the kingdom of God will come and his will will be done. That's what this is all about. And all of these human influences that we read about in this extended passage of scripture are things that you will encounter in your walk. It may not be a dead guy in a cave with a stone rolled over it. It might be, you know, this place that God's called you to. I'm not faulting it, but Have you seen your bank account lately? You think maybe you should change a little bit? Maybe kind of get some cash flowing? Hey, this ministry that you've been doing, 
You don't have a bunch of people lined out at the door. People don't even know your name. You're being held back. I think maybe you should either go and do something on your own and try to stir up business or maybe you could be a little more flashy or maybe you could pester somebody near you to promote you a little bit. Hey, uh, the list goes on. The most important thing we know is that all of these influences in one way or another will challenge your partnership, your covenant relationship with the Father, the heart of God. And will you resist all of them and come to peace in your own self that you are serving God. At the very beginning of this thing, Jesus says, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God to be known. Verse 4, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. That I might show how I am going to demonstrate the glory of God and how any of you that are going to be born again to be sons can demonstrate the glory of God. The greatest challenge, the last enemy, is death. The Bible says that. Seems I've read that somewhere. And um, this story circles around that. What we do in this world while we have life in our bodies because it's appointed to us once to die and, and at the end there's there's an accounting for what we've done while we're here for the father so no matter what we face on this earth in our mission none of it will surpass the ending of life and that's what this story centers around so the glory depicted in Jesus' mission at that moment and the glory that we are asked, that we are offered to partner with God in as sons is really what this is about. The, the, the resurrection of Lazarus wasn't the glory. You realize that, don't you? We want to see the glory. We want to see the dead raised. Well, you can raise 10 people from the dead. Well, what effect did this have? What, what did the raising of the dead do? Some believed. But some of these idiots gather the chief priests and the Pharisees with a report, 46 and 47. What are we going to do? This man does miracles now. And they're trying to process how to get rid of him. If you think that the raising of the dead is going to bring a revival in your city to where everybody will come, think again. Sometimes miracles harden the opposition. Look even, and I'm not going there, but I'm just referencing. October 7th, 1,400-plus people were massacred in brutal ways in Israel. Over 500 more were wounded, and... We don't know exactly how many were kidnapped. How did What effect did that have on people who hate Israel? Boy, they've spun that story, turned it around, turned it into a hammer to bludgeon, created lies, misreporting. If you think that a miracle like this is going to change anybody's mind, it may affect some, but what was the glory here? What was the glory of eternity? Christ came so that we might know the Father, that we might commune with the Father, that we might do His will according to what is forever settled in heaven, that we might do it while we're on this earth. And nothing is going to take us out until God has said, it is finished. We've done what you've come to do. Do you see that? But it's about the covenant 
partnership. It's about the tetheme being sown into that of our lives, of our ongoing planting of the seed moving forward. That's why the understanding of what Lazarus means is the key that's in the lock of this passage and it opens the understanding of what Jesus was doing. Now, Jesus could have just said, all right, I'm sending my word. Come out of there, Lazarus. He could have whispered it from where he was. He didn't do that. He didn't have his timing messed up either. You know, sometimes there are so often, this is the key to walking in patience as an apostle and in faith. You pretty much know what God wants to do. You may not know it all. You may not know how he's going to do it. But yet you realize that just knowing the, the fulfillment that you see on the mountain peak is not the same as having to go from this mountain you're on through the valley and to go up to that fulfillment. you got to walk by faith when you depict the glory. And you've got to deal with people that are near you, people that hate you. You've got to deal with people that overreact, people that are systematic and pragmatic. You've got to deal with those who, who are close to you, that sidle up and they, they want to help you or they, or they want to really know what's going on in you because it just irritates them that they don't have that place enough to be able to know exactly what you're going to do. You've got all these things. And then you have atmospheres that are set by people that are just are just not helpful. How about if we say that? And your spirit is groaning within you. And you you have to come to a point of peace within yourself. And it that where's the greatest miracle? If you've got the son of God groaning in his spirit, you know that just about every kind of nonsense that could be pressing upon what you know the Father wants to do, I, you, you, you've got to stay at peace in that. And this Jesus wept is one of the greatest manifestations of what the Prince of Peace really is. If you can stay at peace in alignment with what God's purpose is, when all of this nonsense and a real-life crisis is going on, that's the great miracle, isn't it? So he lifts up his eyes. He just wants to make sure that everything has been done according to what the Father wants. He's talking to the Father loudly so that people could hear what he was saying and believe as well. This was all about demonstrating what a son of the Most High God does in relationship with the treasury in heaven, motivated by the heart of Elohim. That's what this is about. And I'm grateful for this understanding. Notice the connection between this factor and the eyes. And even notice in the Old Testament when you study so many times the eyes. Eve, who was created as a helper, she looked and the food of that tree was pleasant to what? The eyes. It could have said, when Eve was presented with the fruit, her mouth started a salivating. No, it was pleasant to the eyes. And on and on it goes. And how even in Psalm 121, there's the potential of you misusing the ayin, the whence, which the enemy did, what the sons of Belial did, which Eve did, even though it was the principle and not, not the exact word. Can we have tears washing our eyes 
to make sure we're seeing clearly. And that's like that old song, He washed my eyes with tears that I might see. That's a good song. Uh, the rest of it is good poetic stuff, but um, we've got to, that's how Jesus ministered in this. And again, if we just had the right verse, and if we just had the right power, if we just knew how to argue this case appropriately, we could have just said, Lazarus, you ain't going to die, my friend. You're alive. And it would have been done. See, if Jesus had just known those principles, none of this other stuff would have happened. Of course, Jesus did know those principles. But he chose to depict what it means to partner as a son sent from the Father, motivated by the heart of God, to achieve what that eternal pattern of partnering with the thesaurus in heaven really is. All these other things are tools of the world. They'll try to take you off course. Believe me, don't we know that? But we've got to stay true. Even if your very spirit is so roiling with groanings, you're irritated. Did Jesus get irritated? You better believe he was at times. But there's a difference between being triggered by those things and doing stuff you shouldn't do in response. So, here we are. Lazarus. I hope that we will let this settle into us. Yes, there's miracle power. Yes, you can call forth the dead and they will live when God says. Otherwise, nobody dies and then you got a population problem, don't you? I say one other thing. I don't feel, I think it's safe to say that this wasn't the first time when Jesus was presented with somebody who he loved dying. Joseph, his earthly father, was nowhere to be seen um, in Jesus' public ministry. We don't know what happened to him. But I'm sure that at some point, when Joseph was taken, Jesus then becoming the man of the house, might have had... Now, he knew what the will of the Father was. But he might have had... I'm not adding to the word. But Mary, who knew... Mary, did you know... Mary knew this was the Son of God. She knew he was a miraculous um, life. Do you think maybe when he saw his mother crying, or maybe she said, is there something you can do? That he wasn't at least tempted to call that man back to life? Wouldn't it have been nice for Jesus to have had not just Mary alive when he was ministering publicly, but to also know that Joseph was there to see the fulfillment of that walk of faith that Joseph embraced in raising God's son. So I, I, I believe that this was not the first time that this dare I say, temptation might have presented itself. But this one was in the face of all these people so that the glory of God might be revealed. And point by point, what our mission is as sons and saints is shown. We are born again. We are to be joint heirs with Christ. We are to be sons of our Father in heaven. We are to be those who recognize we each have a divine calling. 
ordained by God from the foundation of the world, and that we must obediently sow that calling in intercessory partnership with the Father in accordance with what God has forever settled in heaven. The books that people think are, are the scriptures say are going to be opened, I'm pretty sure they're stored there too. But for us, this was a textbook teaching of what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to um, endure and overcome all of these types of influences because we do face them, don't we? And if we're one of these kinds of people that is prominently depicted trying to insert ourselves into this thing, maybe we need to correct ourselves a little bit. Maybe we do. All right, I went over time. Thanks so much for joining today. I love this study, and I pray that it's been a blessing to you, and it will continue to be because, again, you Pneumatikos students can study this word out. You can look at these words. You can, you can see where they're used. Please do that. I love it when God shows further things. I, I just love it. And I know you do too. So God bless all of you. Thanks for tuning in today. And I pray you have a wonderful rest of the week. And we'll see you again uh, this weekend on live stream. Till then, God bless. Goodbye.